So today I want to uh, continue the discussion um, how to evaluate the weights of different kamma from that page I sent uh, from puredhamma.net uh, Lal Aryatna Aryaratna uh, Pinadawage is the author, Sri Lankan man who studied with some great uh, Sri Lankan Ceylonese monks. Uh, this is an advanced discussion about karma. And um, to understand um, moral consequentiality, the consequences of moral action, particularly speech and physical behavior, right? There's thought, word, and deed, thinking, speaking, and physical behavior. Uh, heavier karma is developed by speech and physical behavior, mainly because it's interactive, because it's relational to other beings. And um, less so to, you know, there's less karmic weight in a certain sense to your thinking, but uh, distorted thinking or clear thinking will surely <laughs> form the basis or lead generally to distorted or clear speech and behavior. So wrong thought or mistaken view generally leads to wrong speech and wrong action, wrong in the sense of self-harmful. <laughs> Harming other, you harm yourself. Uh, perpetuating distortion is wrong if you want to help yourself. <laughs> if you want to help yourself, don't uh, act out of distortion and don't uh, perpetuate distortion. So we all know that. This discussion, we're halfway down the page at point number five. Uh, I want to just hit the highlights uh, from his uh, previous um, paragraphs on the page. Uh, he, In the first, he says, here we're going to discuss the relative weights of different kama, karma, and some misconceptions people have about them. And he goes to that point that I made, that thought is the basis of speech and action, generally, where, number one, he writes, first of all, the most potent of all, the most potent basis of karma is michaditi, meaning wrong view. We talked about the ten wrong views before, which are basically materialist, nihilist, moral nihilist, existential nihilist perspectives or views. We went into that for a long time. And so the most potent of all, the basis of, you know, uh, limiting karma, uh, the basis of it all is wrong view. That leads to then wrong speech, wrong action. Wrong meaning unskillful or harmful. Uh, and he goes on that um, in in point number three, uh, and this is uh, in blue font, and it actually is more important. Uh, he writes the severity of the consequence of any misdeed. Right, so we're talking about bad karma. The severity, how, how severe is the consequence of any misdeed or any so-called wrong speech, wrong action, that involves another living being depends strongly on the level of existence of the living being that one's affecting, that one's uh, involved or relational to, from the lowest to the highest. And so Buddhism, we have 31 planes, he calls them 31 realms. The lowest is considered a hell realm, Niraya. The highest is considered the most formless realm, um, the 31 planes, absolutely corresponds to Ra's seven dimensions, or it corresponds very well in my perspective, 
and so we're still talking about life in the octave, and we're talking about the um, the um, inescapable <laughs> relationship between the strength of any kind of karmic activity, the strength of its consequences, the intensity in, in the case of wrong or harmful speech and action, its consequences are totally bound up with the level of consciousness and development of the being one's relational, relational to or relating to. And so uh, you have in the Buddhist cosmology the highest level of being being a Buddha, which is a you know fully enlightened world teacher, who is a type of fourth stage awakened person. In Buddhism, there are four stages of awakening, and so he uses the word Arya as a noble, meaning a noble, um, for one who's attained the four stages of awakening. The last is Nibbana or Nirvana, which doesn't have to become a Buddha but is of comparable awakening, actually. It just doesn't happen. It, uh, the Arahant is not a world teacher, necessarily, while a Buddha is, but their attainment is considered about the same, even though one may have certain... The Buddha has magical powers that an Arahant may not have. Their level of freedom, or their freedom from rebirth, in, I would say, the whole octave, so 31 planes, um, that, that uh, achievement of freedom is the same. Now, uh, he writes, a hurtful word against an Arya, meaning somebody who's achieved one of the four levels, or we can say any uh, highly spiritually developed person carries thousandfold bad karma, karma vipaka, cause effect, compared to killing a thousand ants, or something like that. And so, uh, killing a person is much more karmically um, consequential in terms of karmic liability than killing an ant. It doesn't mean the ant is less worthy as a being, but um, you can see that um, the, 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 you can say that what causes um, the, the weighting of karma, uh, or in this case bad karma, uh, you know, wrong speech and action, it's weighting that is associated with the level of consciousness of the other being involved <clears throat> um, is not because uh, a higher developed other being is better than a what? An ant or a microbe? You know, lots of microbes are killed when you boil water. Uh, you're killing countless microbes <laughs> when you're boiling water, you know. Um, why is that considered less karmically liable than killing uh, a dog or a cat or a person, and then more so an Arya or um, an innocent or a Buddha, which it can't be done, but you know a higher level developed yogi. Why? Because the distortion in mind, it's the way I see it, is that the distortion in mind associated with killing a more advanced being is a greater distortion than the distortion in mind associated with killing the lesser evolved being, generally. Um, and he will talk about this down down the page a bit, um, because what what you know what is metaphysically binding, in terms of karmic uh, liability, you know karmic bad karma, what 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 is what establishes the consequence, you know the karmic result coming in later, whenever, however, 
is the nature of the distortion in mind that caused the wrong associated with the wrong speech and the wrong action. And the condition of mind or the distortions of mind that are associated with willfully killing a highly spiritually developed person or a child or any person versus killing a, you know, a, a dog for pleasure, which wouldn't be pleasurable to me, but some sadistic people do it, or killing um, a buffalo for food or killing an ant mistakenly or a microbe when you're boiling water. Um, the distortions in mind associated with killing the more highly developed being are actually greater distortions. And therefore, um, more intensive or harsh traumatic catalyst is required generally for that entity to uh, face and heal and balance and resolve those uh, distortions in future lives when the karma comes back. So it's the, the strength of, you know, the level of the being that we're committing an offense against as determinative or, you know, proportional to the karma that comes back later. We're talking just about bad karma in this case is related to the strength of the distortions in mind associated with the harming of that morally, more highly evolved being in the first place. And the, the requirement for a more intensive and, and generally traumatic or painful catalyst to help the entity work through um, the metaphysical what? Uh, entropy or obstruction or drag, or um, some kind of uh, dis distortion imbalance to the seven chakra energy field and mind that was associated with um, the original harm done to some other being, uh, where, where the higher evolved being, uh, we're harming out of a greater distorted mind. <laughs> There's more rejection of love and light when you when you hurt an innocent or a highly evolved soul than when one hurts um a lesser evolved entity like a, an ant or the fox in the wood for the for the pelt not that i'm condoning killing but um the distortion in mind the killing a fox for a pelt is quite different than the distortion of mind that leads to willful killing uh, of a child like an innocent like a child or a person for money, or a yogi because you just have a bad attitude. So, um, it, it, there is a metaphysical basis to it all um, that we can understand from, uh, in line with the raw material metaphysics, which is very complementary to this. So then we go down the page to number five, the new material for today. Uh, he indicates... Um, when we say killing is immoral, meaning not moral, or um, akusala, it is implicit that killing is taking the life of any living being. But killing a human has comic or karmic consequence that is much higher or stronger or heavier compared to killing an animal. That is the straight, uh, straight Buddhist view, by the way. Killing a sotapanna, first level awakened, has even more drastic consequences, sakadagami, meaning non, uh, once returner, even higher, anagami, meaning nanagami, not returner, third stage awakening, even higher, and killing an arahant will have the highest, meaning the highest level of drastic consequences, the most 
uh, intensive traumatic catalyst necessitated, <laughs> necessitating the more uh, traumatic, painful catalyst karmic return associated with killing uh, or harming in any way, actually, um, a more highly evolved being, particularly those who've achieved these four levels. And um, killing an arahant will have the highest and is of the strongest kind at par with killing a parent, which is called an anantarya, anantarya kama, that will cause the very next rebirth in an apaya, meaning in a hell realm, a lower realm. And so uh, killing your parent is a very serious matter. And that's how the arahan, Mohamogalana, one of the two chief disciples of Gautama, uh, ended up getting beaten to death in his uh, life as Mahamogalana at the time of the Buddha, even though he was an Arahant, because he killed his parents or something like that in past lives, so they say. So it's again the intensity of the distortions in mind, the seven chakra obstructions that are associated with the mindset and the beingness that does the killing of the more highly advanced being. It's a little bit like killing God, you know, and that's what the negatives like. You know, the negatives want to kill God, or they think there is no God, or they want to kill people who believe in God. So they're, um, you know, (laughs) they're booking their place in Nuraya as we speak. Number six, similarly, other immoral acts will have consequences depending on the consciousness level of the living being. It is not a matter of one particular living being is better than another. Hey, hey, just as I said. So we're not talking about worth or ontological value. Anybody, you know, if you know what I'm saying and you get it, you can knock down fools who argue the mistaken, you know, straw man argument to say, oh, you're saying that a yogi is better than an ordinary person or a human's better than an animal? No, we're not saying that. <laughs> we're talking about the nature of the distortions in the mind of the being that is harming the more evolved being. And then that person will say, oh, you're saying that there are more evolved beings than others? Yes, we are. But that doesn't mean they're better than others. Their, their ontological worth, the worth and value of one's being is, you know, Ra said, self is a being of infinite worth. All is God. Yeah, okay, we got that. So uh, beware of uh, straw man arguments that say, well, it's either this or that, and that's what you're saying, right? No, um, be careful of being misunderstood. He goes on, rather it's not, meaning so it's not a matter of one particular living being being better than another. He goes on, rather it's a matter of how valuable that level is and how difficult it is to attain that level, in quotes, level. One has been born a human because of the merits one has acquired in previous lives. It's extremely difficult to get a human birth, as we'll discuss in a separate post. And that's Gautama's common reference to precious human birth. Um, I don't you know, it's a long, long discussion here about how difficult it is to get human birth. Certainly, if you're talking about the number of beings in seven dimensions of any one octave, of any one solar system, of which there are countless or infinite in the galaxies, which are infinite, so infinite galaxies with infinite solar systems, because they're continuing to be created, you know, uh, with infinite, I guess, number of beings in them, how many are in third density human? Probably not so few, not, not so many. You know, very few, not so many. That may be where Gautama is coming from here. Uh, <clears throat> and he is saying that the 
the the metaphysics or the philosophical basis of the greater intensity of the bad karma or karmic return associated with killing higher evolved beings that that's based on the level of the being um, I think that that's one way of saying what I just said which is that the distortions in mind associated with killing a being or harming a being of a higher level or really of a higher development those are greater distortions <laughs> than killing uh, you know, an ant or a microbe when you boil water and so you have to be really distorted to want to kill an arahant or a yogi or a child. You have to be really screwed up. And, um, you know, it's their time now on the 3D stage. So we're becoming familiar with um, relatively pure surface self evil coming out for all to see. Uh, going on, he says, one becomes a sotapanna, and we're going to talk about that last. Uh, after today, we're going to talk about his page, What is Kama? After that, we're going to go to his page on the way to Nibbana. After that, we're going to talk more about Sotapanna, and that'll be where we wrap up in a month or so, or two. He goes on, one becomes Sotapanna. Sotapanna means stream and stream entry, first level of awakening, very much akin to con contact with intelligent infinity, and um, <clears throat> cuts away Michaditi, cuts away wrong views, meaning after a true, uh, after contact with intelligent infinity, from a Buddhist perspective, meaning from Buddhist training, <laughs> and uh, a Buddhist understanding of mind, from that training, making a true contact with intelligent infinity, which really means uh, activation, uh, a, a conscious, a moment of conscious contact with seventh chakra, or intelligent infinity, or intelligent energy six and seven linked. Uh, after that, the being is forever free of um, wrong view, particularly the wrong views associated with materialism and nihilism. They're gone. One knows that um, identity is not mind-body, that this being, one's beingness is not mind-body, and that it, it was and is and goes on. Um, and he says, uh, one becomes Sotapanna by cultivating moral behavior, and purifying one's mind, both. Thus, a life of a sotapanna is much more valuable compared to a normal human being. And that's, you know, some people can argue with that, but it, certainly a sotapanna can help more people than an ordinary person can. So you may say that there are no levels and no better and worse, but there are some people who can help others profoundly well and others who couldn't do it at all and can't even help themselves, and their mind is kind of a mess. And you can say that those people are equal. Um, however, their function and capacity to help others is certainly not equal. And if you value <laughs> being a, of assistance to others, then you might value um, the one who has greater capacity and, and commitment to helping others and really can than the one who um, is psychologically um, disorganized. <laughs> yeah, so got to be careful with the uh, nihilism of our age. Number seven, he goes on, even among humans who have not attained any Nibbanic stage, meaning not complete and perfect enlightenment or any of the four, there are, quote, different levels of consciousness. Right. One who has more wisdom, Panya, is at a higher level than one with less wisdom. And again, this is how he defines the word level. 
uh, I would call it function. The function of wisdom, the function of love. The activation of fourth and fifth and sixth chakras. That's what we're talking about. The relative degree of activation of fourth and fifth and sixth chakras. And so uh, there are people, people demonstrate and have achieved uh, differential development of fourth and fifth and sixth chakra. And fifth is associated with wisdom. But true wisdom is associated or based in love. So somebody with, uh, on the positive path with or able to access more wisdom is somebody who's generally going to be more developed in fourth and fifth ray, which means less blocked in one, two, three. And so that's his, un- his understanding of different levels of consciousness is differential development of these core functions and chakra activities, chakra activation of green, blue, indigo. He goes on, here wisdom does not mean book knowledge, but knowledge of Dhamma, Dharma, or truth, or law, or Buddhist teaching, um, the way of the way of, of life and the path to the to freedom from, from suffering and ignorance. Understanding of the true nature of this world, or Anicca Dukkha Anatta, Anicca Anatta Dukkha, impermanence, stressfulness, and insubstantiality. Thus, the possibility of that person attaining a Nibbonic stage is more likely compared to one who has less wisdom. So we say have or not have wisdom. Obviously, we're not having it. We're not possessing it. One, <clears throat> one being is more or less uh, capable than another of accessing and uh, transmitting wisdom. And wisdom really means, I would say, um, accurate conceptualization of systems and processes. <laughs> principles, philosophical foundations, uh, causal causal relations. It's not simply facts and figures. It's systems and processes and sequences and causality um, and the philosophical basis of, of all that. Uh, that's uh, one that, that's maybe a more defined um, unpacking or unpacking of what wisdom is certainly from my perspective. So, <clears throat> nobody has wisdom, but some people surely have more more activated fourth and fifth chakras. So, there are people who are surprised when a scandal breaks. How, how could he? I never thought of him or her that way. And others are not surprised at all because they saw it years in advance. So, let's, you know, <laughs> let's be discerning. Number eight, he goes on, another important thing is to is not to worry about things that one does not have any control over. Every day, we kill so many small animals unintentionally, stepping on them while walking, cleaning the yard, cleaning the house, and even boiling water. Uh, we need to remember that kama is intention. That's his phrase that I think is very important. Kama, karma, is intention. It's formed by intentionality. He goes on, we're not boiling water to kill any unseen life forms. Rather, we boil water to make sure we don't get sick by drinking contaminated water. Right. So, there is karmic liability to wrong action and wrong speech, even when we don't have a malicious intention. However, the karmic liability or the karmic weight of the consequences, meaning of the degree of painful traumatic catalyst coming, is less when we have we don't have malicious intention. When we have malicious intention in wrong speech, wrong action, 
the karmic weight is greater. The degree of painful traumatic catalyst we've signed up for is greater. However, <laughs> even without malicious intention, wrong speech, wrong action, um, has um, painful catalyst consequences or painful, you know, catalytically or personally painful consequences for future catalysts coming in. But that can be modified, but not completely. <laughs> so, <clears throat> uh, whether we intend harm or not is a factor in the formation of karma or the weighting of karma and therefore consequences. Um, some of this teaching on karma was in relation to another sect in India called the Jains. They're still around, J-A-I-N. Their founder, Mahavira, which means great, great um, vigor, was a very high teacher and a contemporary of Gautama. So <clears throat> it, it's very generally um, neglected in the study of religion that uh, at the time of, the Ga of Gautama, 2,500 years ago, which was the time of the great philosophers in Greece too, like my dear Heraclitus, Hoskotenos, the occult, or the darkened one, who uh, people didn't understand. They were contemporaries, but so was Mahavira of the Jains, and his teaching was radical harmlessness, radical ahimsa. If you, you know, Gautama certainly incorporated ahimsa as other Hindu teachers, as Hindu teachers do, um, Panchashila and all the moral codes are harmless, of, you know, supporting harmlessness, doing no harm. But um, a much stronger proponent of harmlessness, who based his whole teaching on it mainly, was Mahavira. And um, those are the guys who would sweep the road in front of them to make sure they didn't step on little creatures. And some of them basically uh, only ate food that dropped off trees. And some of them didn't wear clothing. That's where you get naked ascetic, the Jains. And um, starved to death once they took initiation vows because killing anything or eating anything equals killing something. So they felt it was most uh, the way of Ahimsa to not eat and kill bacteria, and then they just progressively starved to death. And that was the... Uh, Buddha Gautama would call that wrong view. <laughs> and th this teaching here on the relative weights of karma or... Um, a measure of karmic consequence to the different types of activity uh, as it affects, you know, in relation to the different levels of beings or development of beings we're relating to uh, was in response to the Jain teaching, which uh, Gautama rejected. Although, you know, the principle of non-harm, harmlessness, of course, he accepted. So it's very complicated, but... Um, <clears throat> and you'll see people around who basically have the view that uh, stepping on an ant is um, ontologically identical to killing uh, a yogi or a child. Uh, but I don't think so. So, you know, got to figure it out yourself. But um, kama, <clears throat> I wouldn't say kama fully is or only is intention, but karma is certainly formed chiefly by intention. Uh, meanwhile, the path, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, you can get into a whole lot of trouble with good intentions without wisdom. <laughs> Love without wisdom, <clears throat> not only naive and easily duped, but can become extremely dangerous um, because um, the, the anchor in love may, may be um, easily degradable. 
I mean, love without wisdom won't do any harm. But to the extent that love without wisdom lets itself be used by others with greater wisdom and power, uh, it can surely do harm. So you have to be real careful at that. Um, but in the Buddhist view, um, there is no real karmic consequentiality to inadvertently stepping on ants when you're walking because your intention is to go somewhere for some purpose. But uh, if you want to really take a, a close look at karma, you got to take a close look at your own intentions. <laughs> why am I going where I'm going? Why? Do you know why you're doing everything you're doing? What the value is to you? It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. But um, And there are higher and lower values, right? I might want to watch a silly comedy for two hours. But I know... Um, that it's not the same as uh, Buddha Dhamma <laughs> and studying or teaching this, but um, I want it or I like it and it's harmless, um, fine. But uh, one should be clear on one's intentions, <laughs> certainly in relationship. Why am I here with this person? Um, why did I say that? And um, that's a whole other topic, the analysis of intentions. Number nine, and I want to finish this page i will today number nine it is not even possible to quote live to to live quote in this world without harming other beings unintentionally even though we may be aware that our acts may lead to the destruction of many life forms like boiling water once a bhikkhu who had developed a binya magical powers was getting ready to drink a glass of water and with his ability to see finer things meaning he had a clairvoyance uh, he saw that there were numerous microscopic beings in the glass of water, right? So, uh, microscopic, the, the microscopic clairvoyance or clairvoyant micro microscopy uh, from the individual without technology, no problem. He tried to filter them out, but they were too small. The Buddha then explained to him that it's not possible to live without doing things that are necessary to sustain one's life. <laughs> you can't stay in the incarnation without doing what's necessary to stay in the incarnation. What's necessary to stay in the incarnation includes eating and drinking. Eating and drinking is murderous by definition or killing. Yeah, plants and animals or microscopic creatures in the water. Yep. And that's another, you know, for somebody who wants to muse philosophically, it can go much higher because um, every being, human and animal, is eating the dead carcass of other beings for continued survival or incarnation in the physical. That's just the way it goes here. Um, we're eating the dead meat or the dead um, vegetable material of living beings who have died. So there's killing and dying and eating their bodies, the plant body, the animal body. What else? And even the little bodies, the bodies of the little microscope guys, uh, the little friends in the water. That's just what 3D is all about, whether you like it or not. 2D and 3D is um, physical survival depending on death and the eating of other beings' vehicles. Not too fun. And there's a certain harshness to 3D that does not exist in higher dimensions. And um, it started in the animal second density and we're still tied to plants and animals because we eat them except for breatharians you know and pranic pranic uh, yogis who only eat light and air well that's fine 
you're not killing anybody that way, or there's no death of plant animal bodies involved there. But that's uh, <laughs> nearly no one. Uh, everyone else is eating dead bodies. Uh, matter, organic matter. What is organic matter? It's the body. It's the previous body vehicle of a plant or an animal. Generally, it seems like that to me. That's 3D, baby. And um, um, some wanderers have a, a horror aversion to organic matter, <laughs> to 3D space, time, physicality, materiality. Uh, and most of us have some degree of that horror, actually. Like, oh my God. I remember uh, somebody told me the story. <laughs> they, in their wander awakening process, they were looking at somebody talking. Um, and the person was moving their mouth around, talking. And they had a moment of shock and thought, words come out of that? <laughs> like that piece of meat, head, bone, mouth, meat, opening, closing, opening, closing. Words and thought comes out of that? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the way it is here. Going on. Um, so the Buddha is explaining you can't live without doing things necessary to sustain your life, which involves killing or eating the bodies of those who have died. In another example, suppose one has a wound. If left alone, it could lead to one's death. Thus, one needs to apply medication to the wound. However, that wound is infested with numerous microscopic living beings, and they will be killed by the medication. So you can't live without killing. You can't live in the physical without some other beings dying. Whether you killed them or not, doesn't matter. But they're dying to provide the body, uh, the organic matter of their body for us and our living or eating to live is um, inescapable in 3D incarnation and space-time. Not in the astral, but in space-time. Walking on the ground, he goes on, especially grass kills many insects, but we cannot live our lives without going places. What matters is our intention. When one is walking, there is no intention of killing living beings, unless you're a sadist. So, generally, you know, you're not intending. However, again, um, one can, um, one can, like, fall into wrong speech, like harsh speech. And, or idle chatter. These are two forms of wrong speech. Harsh speech, like lots of cussing. Idle chatter like um, endless talking about uh, the food at this restaurant or something, or endless selfies with my smiley face with uh, in different backgrounds. This is a kind of idle chatter mind focus, I'd say. That have cars those have karmic consequences, no doubt, but um, the intention um, is unconscious. <laughs> um, he's making a distinction between the karmic consequences of killing with intention and killing without intention or harming with intention harming with conscious intention versus harming with unconscious intention the unintended harm may be from um, carelessness which shows uh, a lack of intention to be careful or an intention to avoid certain things that are associated with being careful. So, um, unconscious motivation demonstrates the intention of avoiding uh, contact with certain uh, personal dynamics or intentions that we rather not look into. 
walking around unconsciously. So when you cut your finger by mistake, you know, cutting your carrot, um, uh, making a stew or something, uh, you didn't intend to cut your finger, but subconsciously you can say you did. There was an unconscious motivation or intention. The fact that it's unconscious is because it's not conscious, obviously. It's unconscious because you don't want to know that you're going too fast or you have some old anger to yourself, let's say, as an example. And so um, intention, unconscious intention, um, does calculate into karma. It's just unconscious. Uh, But the harm associated with killing or the consequences of killing, when it's unconscious, like stepping on ants, um, is far, far different and less than intentionally killing any being or particularly more advanced or developed consciousness beings like people or innocent people or um, monks and nuns or of any group, really, spiritually minded people. And so um, a long discussion of intention could be had, but not here. And you can say that while intention is kama, uh, conscious intention is not only the only level of intention. There's intention that's unconscious, and that's comma too. <laughs> and so unconscious intention that represents actually a uh, some degree of a conscious unwillingness to know. That's why it's still unconscious. Because you haven't been seeking to know consciously. And so the more you're unconscious, the more you've demonstrated a commitment to not seeing and knowing. <laughs> but that unconscious intentionality or you know unconscious intentions, those form karma too. Uh, but they're just a little different in this case uh, because, you know, killing insects when you're walking to to your car, you're not intending, you don't even know what you're doing, and it's it's unavoidable, actually. The living of the life requires going out and about, like you've got to get food to live, or you want to help somebody if you're a saint. You want to go and help somebody, you've got to move. And so, generally, you've got to walk somewhere or something. Uh, That kills beings. Um, but uh, the discussion of unconscious intentionality or the formation of karma based on unconscious intentions is a whole other subject um, and much deeper. Number 10, what we need to do, he writes, is to be careful not to do any harm to even the smallest of the creatures with a hateful or greedy mind. It is the intention or the state of mind that counts. And again, there's unconscious intention, which is part of the state of mind. It's the unconscious personal, the personal unconscious, that counts too, but we can surely not act from a hateful or greedy mind, meaning not act out of, um, you know, wild, unrestrained greed and desire to get and take and keep and hold, nor, uh, you know, nor act from hate and the desire to harm, like I want revenge and punishment to you because you hurt me and you're bad. We can restrain our speech and, and action. <laughs> we can restrain our speech and behavior. And self-restraint is a big deal in Buddhism. Uh, and like raw material said, like Ra said, you know, if you have desires uh, that are indeed infringing on others, which are called harming others, which is called uh, creating bad karma, or akusala, you know, uh, wrong action, ten wrong actions like that, 
Um, you can process it in your mind and live it out in your mind, but restrain your speech and your physical behavior. And that's exactly what Gautama is teaching and the Buddhist teaching is here too. And so we can restrain activity. And that's a hard thing, right? It's like, I mean, many, many people talk about that. It's nothing exclusive to Buddhism. That um, it's better not to speak out of anger nor act out of uh, unbridled greed, desire, ambition. Um, and one can accept and understand those feelings and desires or tendencies without action, still restrained. One can restrain without repression. Um, expression, verbal expression, speech, physical expression, behavior, can be well restrained without any restraint or repression of the mental, emotional, imaginative process. And um, it's when it's when the, the necessary or when when necessary or valid or helpful um, speech and behavior restraint goes into self-oppressive, suppressive, mental, emotional, internal suppression or restraint, that is when you get a problem. And so um, one can do a whole lot of processing alone with far more catalyst than one would think. And yet the internal suppression is never helpful, as Ross said, you know, overcoming is never going to help. Uh, it doesn't work. <laughs> uh, but it is true, many Buddhists have um, become internally suppressive, as the Scientologists call their SPs, suppressive persons, like Scientology itself is. And so... Buddhism itself is not counseling, shut down your bad thoughts and feelings. But people have done that. <laughs> and many monks do that. And many Buddhists do that. But that's not really what's being taught here. So, uh, is the intention or the state of mind that counts? Yes, <laughs> at all levels of mind. He goes on, there is a story about an old woman who was very careful about not breaking the five precepts. Five Panchashila. But she was extremely greedy, she was quite stingy, did not give much to charity, and kept all her money under her pillow. Because of that greed, she was born a petta, a hungry ghost. So how about that? She kept the five precepts, but her mental tendencies were so extreme uh, that um, that won the day and she was reborn as an earthbound spirit. Or she died and became an earthbound spirit for a time. He goes on, it, was rel it is relatively easy to keep the five precepts, right, against killing or stealing or lying in wrong speech or harming self and other with intoxicants or sex. Relatively easy to keep the five precepts. What is harder is, is to purify one's mind of greedy, hateful, and ignorant thoughts. This is what needs to be accomplished in true anapanasati bhavana. And anapanasati means in-breath, out-breath, sati, or mindfulness. It's the standard Buddhist breath practice commonly called vipassana. Bhavana um, means, I think, training or cultivation. And so he's talking about the linkage between breath, mindfulness, meditation, and the purification of mind, basically from desire, aversion, and ignorance, the three poisons. And um, again, in my view and my experience, um, 
some people are ultimately suppressing the mental emotional flow with hate and judgment and and blame um, and aggression uh, rather than purifying mind and they, they you know uh, mental emotional suppression is really what some people are doing while they think it's self-purification or purification of mind so purification of mind definitely requires love <laughs> and acceptance and the healing cycle as Ra talked about and um, yet some people mischaracterize Buddhism as oppressive, self-suppressive, um, desire-rejecting. Um, yes and no, but it also depends on the person. And so, um, Buddhism um, is a, uh, a teaching on self-training, self-training of mind-body for complete and perfect enlightenment. The quality of the presentation of Buddhism uh, spoken by any one person, whether they're a, a master or a monk or um, a lay person or an outsider or a scholar or anyone, the quality of their presentation <laughs> depends on the, the development of their awareness and their maturity, spiritual maturity, in Buddhism and as a person. And so some people have a much more sophisticated, deep understanding of Buddhism than others. Uh, but if you listen to those who don't have deep understanding and you say that's Buddhism, um, <laughs> you're, you know, taking a distortion for, you, you know, you're, you're imagining sand as a diamond, but you've been given sand and it isn't the teaching that is a diamond. So people should be careful. Going on, even though we may not be greedy or hateful in this life, or I'd say not that much, we may have acquired such bad kama in previous lives and so you can say that the tendencies of mind are themselves karmic return, not just things that happen in the world or body conditions, but also the very states of mind, one's patterns of mind are themselves the karmic result of previous decisions or previous activities of thought and word and behavior. We may have acquired such bad karma in previous lives. This is why the Buddha said that even if one lives morally in this life, that doesn't guarantee a good rebirth unless one has attained Sotapanna stage of Nibbana, meaning Sotapanna. And there's a page he wrote on why Sotapanna is better off than any king, emperor, or billionaire. And that's a very sobering thought. <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> there is no guarantee of good future rebirth unless one has achieved Sotapanna, uh, because only Sotapanna, or that level of development associated with a contact, a, a first and solid contact with intelligent infinity. Um, a true soul contact, higher self linkage alignment um, in, in conscious embodied experience. Uh, before that, one surely can fall into bad ways and therefore get a bad rebirth. And so Buddhism is, is very scrupulous and careful about <laughs> um, <clears throat> attention to behavior, speech and action particularly, and thought as the basis of it. So even if one lives morally in this life, <clears throat> one can still have a bad rebirth. How about that? Uh, unless one has had that breakthrough. So um, one ought to ponder that. And he goes on, Buddha Dhamma is all about the mind. Purifying the mind is the key, not just to follow set rules. Just following precepts will not be enough. So behaviorally, we can restrain ourselves, and that's critical. 
that's following precepts is physical, behavioral, speech, restraint. But <clears throat> uh, purification of mind is more important or is critical too. Uh, and that really means um, identifying and then deeply accepting and understanding and moving to heal uh, extreme patterns of distortion or patterns of extreme distortion. Generally, we'll associate it with the three poisons. Uh, anger, uh, irritation, aggression to self and other. Um, greed or desire or envy, jealousy, longing, this profound insatiable hunger, hungering in any way to anything. Social, physical, sensual, mental, interpersonal, you know, whatever. And ignorance, which really means... Um, dishonesty, <laughs> self-dishonesty, not facing yourself, your, your mental process, fooling yourself, avoidance, and um, distractedness, and um, attachment to foggy-mindedness, people who just don't want to think, um, that has long-term harmful consequences too. So just following precepts is not enough. And finally, number tw 11, and this will be the point we end on, Finally, it's important to remember that hate is worse than greed. Excessive, hateful actions lead to rebirth in the lowest realm, the Niraya, hell. Excessive greed lead to rebirth mainly as pet does, hungry ghosts. Hey, hey. So you don't have to go to hell. You could just be an earthbound spirit wandering the earth with a tiny mouth and a big stomach and a little neck uh, for a short time. That's the Buddhist depiction of petta, also called preta. And... Um, it's strange that actually the animal rights organization is called PETA, Protection for what? Environmental something something. But I wonder if there's some strange connection between that group and an awareness that um, a lot of humans uh, become earthbound spirits after death. And some of them perhaps are involved in uh, wanton killing of animals. So, um, hate is worse than greed, yeah. But hate is also... Um, when channeled in spiritual practice, meaning restrained hands and speech, no action harming others, but hate of my pain, <laughs> hate my pain, hate my ignorance, hate my, my distortions and stuckness, not I hate myself, I hate this suffering ignorance I'm in, um, then uh, as the powering for uh, throwing oneself into hours of meditation a day, every day, uh, where one is not thinking hate in the meditation, but one is turning the, uh, the force of that hate towards uh, tight attention focus on the breath, or the body, or the process, mindfulness, you know, hate-based attentiveness, <laughs> not thinking, but uh, seriously unhappy with one's condition. I mean, this is my path in the early, in the 20s. Um, hate of my suffering and ignorance and uh, condition. Not hate myself, but hate how stuck I was, I felt. Throwing that into um, high-disciplined hours of sitting practice daily, um, which, in, which involved not thinking about hate, but moving towards dropping thought and returning attention back to the breath again, again, again. That's okay. That's very helpful, actually. And people, it's said in, I think, um, Buddha Gosha, or one of the commentaries on um, Abhidhamma, 
the, the classic, I believe, that of the three tendencies of mind, hate, greed, and ignorance, three poisons, people who are mainly of the hate type um, have the potential of getting awakening faster, can awaken faster generally than those of the other two types. But uh, indeed, in activity, hate uh, has much further, much much more serious long-term consequences, which means uh, it necessitate even more painful traumatic catalyst in the future than greed. Excessive hateful actions lead to rebirth in hell. Excessive greed generally leads to hungry ghosts. He goes on, mixture of hate and greed leads to rebirth in all four lower realms, the Apayas. So the Apayas are actually all the four lower realms, which I believe is um, hell, animal, and, and hungry ghost. Uh, I don't know what the fourth might be, but there are a few hells, and there's, you know, hell, which comes from, I mean, hell is lower astral. That's all. And it's real. And um, the people there, or souls there, for when they're there, are those who gave way to unbridled hatred, aggression, and harm, physical harm by body and speech to others and self throughout their lives. And the next lower realm is a hungry ghost, Petta, and that's people who can't put it down, can't let go of wanting more and more stuff or whatever they want. And then um, that's associated with desire, and the animal realm, which I don't think many beings go to or are reborn in, is based on ignorance and the rejection of mental function. But, you know, self-zombification these days, people becoming derationalized, willingly derationalized, um, are becoming animalized, even if they don't have to re reborn, be reborn in animals in the future. Um, that's the same tendency. The, the fourth of the lower realm, I'm not sure what that is, maybe human. <laughs> but he goes on, if one does not carry over the hateful or greedy thoughts to speech or bodily actions, right, don't let it out, they still count, especially if one thinks about them most of the time. So the more you think about them, the stronger its effect, even if you don't um, let them express in speech or bodily action. Bodily action and speech obviously are more potent consequentially than thought, but thought is the basis of speech and action. But if one has the activity of um, continual thought uh, on a certain way of associated with hate and greed or desire and aggression, uh, one will be harmed and have a trouble after death also. This is why it's important to develop good meditation habits, and he has a page on bhavana meditation. A mind free of hate and greed becomes less agitated and more peaceful. Then it leads to wisdom, right? So, shila samadhi panya, prajna, is uh, morality as the basis of um, success in meditation, which is samadhi, concentration, calm, equanimity which then, with persistence, leads to insight and wisdom, prajna or panna. And um, in the future, we're going to look at, maybe next week, the page, what is kama? Is everything determined by kama? Uh, and a deeper, you know, continuing analysis of what karma is all about. Uh, I hope this was helpful. And, yeah... There you go. Thank you. The fourth lower, the fourth um, lower realm or unhelpful realm, 
is the realm of Ashuras. Ashura. So, you know, the Buddhism, you have 31 planes, which to me fits very perfectly with... The 31 planes are divided into three realms. Again, people use the word planes and worlds and realms, dimensions and densities. We're talking about a, a, a time-space um, existence, uh, time-space, you know, the, the provision of time-space for experience. A qualified time-space um, potential or support for experience. That's a realm. So 31 planes comes into or comes out of the three realms, desire, form, and formless realms. Those three go well into the seven planes, seven dimensions of Ra. And um, while Buddhism considers the Asuras as higher dimensional negatives, not the same as hell realm, they're also considered a lower realm or a they're really considered a state of woe. One of the apayas is really states of woe, W-O-E, like bad places, <laughs> places you don't want to be reborn. Animal, from ignorance. Hell, from aggression. Hungry ghost, earthbound spirit, from desire. And uh, Ashura, from well-disciplined service to self. <laughs> but um, it ain't a happy place, by the way. <laughs> so all these New World Order folks with their D-wave or demon wave and... Uh, bringing the superintelligences through and harming the innocents and drunk on the blood of innocence, um, very few of them will even achieve uh, 4D negative harvest. Nearly all of them will go to hell, actually. And so it'll be a thick lower astral envelope after harvest uh, for the planet that's moving into fourth density. So, <clears throat> heavy stuff. Uh... Next time, we're going to look at the page, what is Kama, is everything determined by Kama? And I think it's helpful to acknowledge the um, basis of Karma being intention, knowing that intention includes unconscious motivation, and the Karma of speech and physical behavior is in some ways heavier, um, heavier in manifestation than... Um, the karma of thought, you know, uh, three poisons thought, three poisons being, you know, desire or greed, greed, hate, and ignorance. The problem, you know, negative karma or akusala, um, uh, wrong action, ten akusala activities, are based, are, or they're wrong or harmful or unskillful because they're based in the three poisons. Uh, likewise, um, Michaditi Ten Wrong Views are also based in the third poison of ignorance. And the differential between good and bad karma, or activity of body and speech and thought, that leads to supportive, pleasurable, um, good fortune, fortunate, helpful consequences, which we call good karma, is the fact that it has less of those three poisons. <laughs> uh, greed is replaced by generosity uh, anger is re replaced by love and ignorance is replaced by wisdom and clarity that's the transformation of the three poisons and the more they're transformed the more we're creating good karma not bad karma and therefore we're setting ourselves up for harmonious and supportive conditions of body and mind in the future and that's the point 
So next time we're going to look at what is comma. Uh, and I hope this has been helpful. Uh, thank you for being here. Take good care of yourselves and good night.